Hello and welcome to another episode of Interregnum with Richard Seymour. I spoke to Richard about the resignation of Liz Truss and the ongoing civil war within the Conservative Party. We also talked about why Richard characterises the Conservatives as a middle-class protest party. And finally, we discussed whether or not Labour's impressive poll leads are vindication of the strategy of Labour leader Keir Starmer. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Radius, a story of feminist revolution by Yasmin El Rife. In 2012, the joyful hopes of the democratic Egyptian revolution were tempered by revelations of mass sexual assault in Tahrir Square in Cairo. Radius by Yasmin El Rife tells the story of the women and men who formed Apantish, Operation Anti-Sexual Harassment, who deployed hundreds of volunteers, scout rescue teams and getaway drivers to intervene in the spiralling cases of sexual violence against women protesters in the square. Drawn from years of interviews and the author's own intimate experience, it is a story of women's resistance when all else had failed. Radius, a story of feminist revolution by Yasmin El Rife, is out on the 18th of October from Verso Books and is part of the Verso Book Club October reading. And now to today's interview. I spoke with Richard yesterday, and of course in the very volatile situation of the Tories' into Nissan warfare, things changed quickly. Both Richard and myself are feeling rather less confident than we were when we spoke yesterday that the next Conservative Prime Minister won't be Boris Johnson, given that the Tory right now seems to be coalescing around his candidacy. So we're speaking a few hours after the resignation of Liz Truss, after her calamitous and historically brief term in office. And just on the brevity of her tenure, do you think that's straightforwardly due to how weak her position very rapidly became and how preposterously unsuitable she was for leadership in our media-saturated era? And that was something you pointed to early on. Or do you think the speed with which she's been dispatched has additional causes that speak to deeper dynamics in our politics today? I think it's a combination of uh, her own personal ineptitude and obviously the structures of power, particularly financial power, the relationship to the Bank of England. But the fact that someone like Liz Truss could be chosen is indicative of an on-running crisis in the British political system. I've argued for some time that parliamentary democracy in this country is pretty weak. It's encircled, surrounded by forces that are a lot more powerful. Certainly, I think in the last 40 years, we've seen much more of concentration of power in unelected bodies, in the executive. And of course, you know, that's uh, hastened along by the outsourcing of uh, public services and various other things, quangos and what have you. So what's happened in, in the last decade or so has been the emergence of this new fusion of big data, new technologies, financial capital, media. Uh, the way in which it's been reformatted by the social industry and uh, political parties. And I think that the result is this kind of very volatile system where those who do well are those who move fast and break things, the disruptors, uh, the, as, as they vaingloriously call themselves. And so that uh, engenders a kind of constant anxiety on the one hand, um, particularly among the citizens of the social industry, but more generally too, which uh, can only be managed by the offer of, you know, ontological security and a popular leader, but we never seem to get that. 
and uh, or at least the promise of that. And the thing about this anxiety is that it fuels a reaction, a particular kind of reaction, the kind that people like Farage and Trump and so on benefit from. So I think that uh, trust is just an accidental beneficiary of that. I think that, remember when we talked about this before, I said that I thought that she was cunning with regard to her career. She's a pretty good career politician in that sense, but obviously is not cut out to run a capitalist state. So, you know, and we're going to see more of that. As of today, it's unclear what the process will be to replace Truss, but the talk is that there will be an effort to present a single candidate and that candidate will need at least 100 nominations to go through the the whittling down process within the parliamentary party. And then a single candidate will be put to the members in in an online poll to, to ratify. Assuming that Boris Johnson stands, which is not clear, given that it seems he may not be able to meet that that threshold, who do you think is most likely to emerge as the new leader of the party and, and the next prime minister? And do you think any candidate would be able to command authority within this party, which now seems irrevocably uh, riven by factions? Yeah, no, I don't think the civil war is going away, that's for sure. Logically speaking, uh, if it's going to be structured in that way with uh, 100 MPs as the bare minimum of support and with uh, members only brought in to give plebiscitary confirmation, then you would expect establishment candidates like uh, Rishi Sunak and to some extent Penny Mordaunt to do very well. I know that Kimi Badnock's hat is potentially in the ring, I think the the right is going to struggle to get enough discipline to find a single candidate who will be able to assemble enough MPs. You know, I just don't think it's going to be Boris Johnson. If it was left to the members, it absolutely would be Boris Johnson. But obviously, they've contrived this fairly undemocratic procedure. You know, they wanted a coronation, and that's what they've got. So, I, you know, I thought that the Parliamentary Party would not be united enough to impose a kind of establishment stitch-up, but it seems like they don't have to be. It's the right that's going to be more divided in this context. I could be wrong. Braverman could do well, and uh, you know, God knows uh, she's not much brighter than Liz Truss or any better at politics. I think her, hers is just as much a minoritarian project. But she's popular with the rank and file, probably. Um, and arguably more vicious when it comes to her cultural politics, I suppose, than Truss. Absolutely. Yeah, Truss, in some ways, I think, would be relatively socially liberal, like Boris Johnson in that respect. Uh, not that they particularly care about the rights of anybody in particular. They're just not that bothered about going after trans people and identity politics and so on. To be honest with you, I would think that the Conservative Party would be doing itself no harm compared to where it is now if it did get Johnson back, because he has a certain skill. On the other hand, if they just wanted somebody who could transcend the Tory party civil war, who was anonymous and who is a proven loyalist and who you know will do as he's told, I would have thought someone like Ben Wallace would be right for the role, but I don't think that's going to be him. On the idea of Johnson coming back, uh, I mean, I think you're right. You know, it's easy to imagine that he would at least give them uh, more of a chance of not having a catastrophic outcome at the next election because he has some charisma to him. He's able to mobilise his own base, at least. But the prospect of, of him being prime minister in this context does seem rather strange because the likelihood is he would be overseeing austerity and fiscal consolidation. 
And you, you could sort of imagine that he might be hubristic enough to imagine that he can get into power and plot his own course. But it, it seems likely that he really wouldn't have much room for manoeuvre right now. Yeah, I, I think he would be in a real fix. But I, I also don't think he would want to go along with the cuts. Partly just because he's very unpopular and he doesn't like being unpopular. And where are they going to cut? What are they going to cut? I realise that these people are vicious I realise that to an extent they're quite irrational. It, it seems very difficult to design an austerity project that would actually win widespread support, win an election and so on. So I, I, I agree that he would be somewhat captive to the position, but the thing is he seems to want the job, which is interesting. A little over a week ago, and, and before it became clear just how comprehensively Jeremy Hunt was going to jettison Liz Truss's mini-budget and, and how much there was going to be a, at least an attempted turn towards austerity, you wrote that any Tory government, no matter its avowed commitments, is going to be forced into expanding the state's economic interventions. Right, Keynesianism is the only game in town for the Conservatives. The question is how and in whose favour. Given what we've seen from Hunt and that there will at least be this attempt to implement austerity, why are you confident that the Conservatives will be forced, at least eventually, to actually increase spending? First things first, they haven't yet cut spending. They've increased taxes or they've reversed the tax cuts, which means, I mean, that is to pay for existing spending, to pay for interest payments. We can come back to that. Second of all, they already have increased public spending. Public spending increased substantially in 2020 and 21, and then again in 2021-22, and not just as a share of GDP, which was obviously contracting. So they might have been expected to cut back some services and so on to pay for the massive economic interventions that they engaged in and to pay for the increased cost of health care and so on. They actually cut back on interest repayments on debt. Then they cut back on a little bit of investment for housing and amenities. But the overall spend was huge and stayed high in 2021-22. If you look at total spending, even after they cut back on economic support, it remained very high, largely because of the cost of health care. There were also moderate increases in social spending and defence. Some small cutbacks in other areas to cover the sharply increased interest rate repayments. So the Tories, I grant, didn't choose this amount of spending. And had it not been for the pandemic, they would mainly have just been increasing capital spending based on borrowing to pay for infrastructure, lots of pork barreling, big name projects. But that's sort of the point. The system that's evolving is one that requires more spending, partly because the state has to metabolize more frequent and drastic crises in the system, partly because of the continued encroachment of privileged sectors of private capital in healthcare, education, prisons, what have you, all of that driving up costs, and partly because UK capitalism desperately needs a post-Brexit strategy for growth. It needs something to export besides financial and management services. It needs to stimulate domestic industry as foreign direct investment falls. So Singapore on the Thames, which I think is what the Thatcherite ultras ultimately wanted, uh, you know, Thatcher was a big fan of the Singapore model and hymned its praises during a, an important speech to Citibank uh, in Singapore. Um, but that's a non-starter. Mm. And, it, and it plays a big role in, in the uh, Britannia Unchained book as well. Absolutely. You know, Asian capitalism um, is, is, a, is a big model here, although obviously not Chinese capitalism. Well, arguably not even any Asian capitalism, given how unprepared they would be to actually do many of the things that were done in, you know, somewhere like Singapore in terms of land use and so on. 
Yeah, they're really not prepared for this, um, and they're they're talking about the wrong country, frankly. The idea that uh, the UK could be made into a country like Singapore, it just doesn't make sense. But as I also say in that piece, the contradiction is that capitalism needs a state it cannot afford if the profits of capitalism and the rights of investors are to be respected. So the dilemma the Tories find themselves in uh, is just that, and that's why they keep pushing at the boundaries. You know, Palancis referred to the state as, among other things, the congealment of an unstable system of compromises. So everything the state does is overdetermined by social and political struggle. So there's always potentially room for cutting back those expenditures which essentially socialize profits and support basic living standards. And whether they can do so depends on class struggle uh, in its various forms, not just about strikes. And notwithstanding the weakened and precarious state of organized labor, I really think they have reason to be wary of an outright confrontation with the majority. It's worth bearing in mind that even during austerity, they didn't quite do that. They they did a bit of salami slicing. You know, they they were quite targeted with their cruelty. So uh, I think I think they're they're in a a bind. Yes, I mean, I suppose one thing about the idea of them implementing austerity now is also that popular culture feels very different than it did in 2010. You know, the time of sort of Benefit Street and the popularization of the, you know, the term chavs and so on. The idea that there's the idle poor. I mean, yeah. it was notable, I thought, actually, in fact, that Suella Braverman, in, in a speech, I think, at the Conservative Party conference, um, referred to Benefit Street with regard to people in her constituency and that this is, you know, a real problem in Britain of, you know, supposedly work shy people on benefits and, and all this. But I thought it was notable she had to refer to a TV show from more than 10 years ago to make that point. On your point about the necessity of creating some form of growth strategy, is that because of the necessity of ensuring some kind of popular legitimacy or is it because you think uh, capital itself is doing badly, which seems less clear? Yeah, um, I would say that I have a broadly Althusserian approach to this, uh, as you would expect. And I'm referring here to Althusser's essay, Contradiction Over Determination, where he talks about how ruptures in a system occur when contradictions accumulate at a particular point in the social structure. And then he develops this model of the social structure, the totality, taking over from Marx the idea that we can speak analytically of different levels, economics, politics, and ideology. And he says, look, it's not the case that ideology and politics simply reflect the economic base, but rather each level has its own specific effectivity, each level is doing something important by itself, and each point in the totality has an influence an overdetermining effect on every other point. So if a crisis erupts in politics, we can be sure that it's overdetermined by the accumulation of contradictions elsewhere in the structure. So that's at the most abstract level. Concretely, we can talk about the various pressures that a state has to assimilate. Legitimacy um, is one type. But that's amenable, as I said a moment ago, to changes in the symbolic order. So, for example, nationalist or militaristic ideologies can take the pressure off of social demands. That's ideology. Less amenable are structured political conflicts such as the imperialist conflicts between the US and Russia or China. Less amenable still are the systemic dysfunctions like low investment and poor labor productivity, which is something that the UK has suffered for a long time. And least amenable of all, and I'm not sure where this would fit into the Marxian model, uh, maybe we need a new metaphor, uh, are the biophysical limits imposed on accumulation by planetary processes. So 
The state comes in, as I said, everything it does is overdetermined by struggle. And one of the functions of the state is to metabolize the crises generated by capitalism through its operations to secure the conditions for its extended reproduction. Necessarily, it does so in a way that's overdetermined by the accumulating contradictions of that system. And I think that a legitimacy crisis alone might be manageable, you know, in terms of, you know, keeping voters on side. A supply chain crisis might be manageable. A conflict with Russia might be manageable. Higher energy prices, ecological blowbacks, weak investment, labor productivity. Any one of those things on their own might be manageable. But what's deadly and what raises the cost for the state in a compulsory manner is the way in which all of these contradictions are overdetermined and feed back on one another. So, you know, um, take the legitimacy crisis. That's been going on for some time. Crisis of representation, uh, collapse of political authority, weak party political investment, etc. But it's because of the energy crises uh, and the food prices, um, in, inflation in those terms, the supply chains problem, weak investment and the climate crisis in the background. It's because of that that the legitimacy crisis is actually really difficult and costly to manage. Uh, that's how I would phrase this. There, there are pressures on the state and capitalism's contradictory need for the state to demand an inability to pay for it without sacrificing profits. All that's mediated by struggle and crisis, and that's what's raising the costs. If we do see this effort to implement cuts, do you expect that we would very substantially see opposition to cuts from within the Conservative Party, which is, of course, very different to the party of, of Cameron and Osborne, and whose MPs are aware that they weren't elected on the, on the platform of, of either Trussonomics or of a return to Osborneomics, even if their you know, resistance to implementing austerity wouldn't really be about concern for ordinary people? But again, it might be that they feel they lack the legitimacy to do that and fear punishment at the polls. Yeah, it depends on what they're most afraid of at the moment. Are they most afraid of Labour, uh, of the voters, of the press, of the markets, meaning, of course, the Bank of England, financial investors, or of their own members? I mean, if it was about Tory members and the far-right media, like the Express and the Daily Mail and GB News, they, I think, saw Truss as their anti-globalist candidate who would take on the institutions, blocking a Brexit revolution. They are going to be disoriented and demoralized. They're going to be frightened of the markets, but I think will be extremely wary of the grey suits led by Jeremy Hunt, just imposing what uh, <laughs> Dan Wharton calls globalist Ramoners on them. And the right-wing media will tend to split between the centre-right who are rah-rahing the return of orthodoxy and will absolutely clamour for spending cuts, and the hard-right who basically, they're not necessarily opposed to spending cuts, indeed they would like a smaller state over the long term, but they just don't care about balancing the budget and they certainly don't want to sacrifice the populist energy for the sake of the establishment. Then there's voters. I can see no electoral space for a cuts agenda at the moment. It would have no authority. It would risk provoking political unrest in a way that, if it happened, would be devastating for the Tories and would put any incoming Labour government under an awful lot of pressure. And you don't think that appealing to the authority of the bond markets, which seems very real right now, uh, you don't think that would fly? I'll come back to that because that's uh, sort of uh, related to what I was about to say as well. Um, because, you know, if you think about the markets, um, w what we mean by that term is, you know, financial corporations, the IMF, the Bank of England, and so on. I think they would probably like the Tories to continue scaling back public spending, but they're not in favour of austerity in the way that they were back in 2010. Their position's a lot more ambiguous now because years of austerity demonstrably made their situation worse. So, um, really, they're under pressure from 
you know, uh, long-term survival of the Conservative Party, but much more fundamentally short-term career survival. And I think uh, it's been argued, and I agree with this, that most Tory MPs are basically very short-term in their perspective. As to the authority of the bond markets, this is where Labour's position is very important. Labour still has channels into working-class communities and consciousness. If it argues that some cuts are just nailed on, unavoidable, no government could deliver anything without reassuring investors, then that will have some effect. And we already saw Keir Starmer making statements roughly to that effect at the TUC conference. And preference shaping is an important and neglected area of political science. It's one of the most important things that a party of potential government can do. But I think it would be a mistake to underestimate just how angry people are and how little respect there is for the political establishment and how shallow uh, any uh, identification with any project is and above all how despised the banks are because ultimately, no matter how you spin it, if there is going to be an argument for spending cuts to appease bond traders and so on, that is basically a repeat of austerity, protecting the interests of financial investors as the leading fraction of capital against everyone else. And I think that would go down really badly. And honestly, if two weeks of mind-numbing royalism didn't turn people into sheep, maybe this is beyond the bankers and their allies this time. You've argued that George Monbiot's characterization of the conservative right as representing plutocratic interests is, is incorrect. And, and instead, you argue that the Tory party is now, as you put it, a, a middle-class protest party. Can you explain why you take that view? And also, if figures like Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were the creatures of the Institute of Economic Affairs, how did the latter institution become so unmoored from economic reality? Or do you think it always was, and that the role of a savvy conservative parliamentarian is to sift through the prescriptions of institutions like the IEA to find workable material while jettisoning some of the more unhinged ideas? <laughs> Um, there's something to that. I'll come back to that. But if Truss was a puppet of the plutocrats, it would be hard to explain the plutocrats absolutely humiliating her government, sinking her policy on pain of absolute economic ruin, forcing her to a point of team of financial sector wonks led by supporters of George Osborne, and, you know, basically precipitating the potential collapse of the Conservative Party. I think there's possibly a tendency on the left or part of the left to look at people like Trump or Truss or projects like Brexit or even, you know, this goes back to the Iraq war, I think, uh, to a large extent, and find a few commercial interests aligned with the project and say, well, you know, this project represents corporate interests in a way that ignores the position of the majority of big capital. And, you know, I mean, this may be controversial to say, but I don't think Brexit was supported by big capital. I don't actually even think the war in Iraq was uh, a project of big capital. I mean, some corrupt sectors of capital got money out of it. But really, that was, uh, uh, you know, a particular project of the Bush administration and the neocons. I think that's partly because we need... In order to fight battles, we need a them-and-us narrative, and it's much easier to talk about taking on the plutocrats rather than uh, something much more complicated, rooted in middle-sized capital, middle-class activism, fundraising, organising, and so on. And it's easier not to think about the way the Conservative Party has mutated and changed. Sure. Uh, partly, partly because we want to, I think, reasonably push back against that centrist line, which likes to say, oh, you know, they used to be respectable Tories, you know, they used to be good <laughs> Conservatives, you know, and they point to figures like John Major and, and, and so on and make out like these are, you know, sort of respectable people with, you know, decent opinions and so on. 
there's an element of that and you know there's you know understandably uh, a, a a need to keep in mind the real enemy and you know the real enemy is big capital in in a manner of speaking someone once referred to ukip i can't remember who it was but someone once called them uh, a rotary club clan there was something to the description just so long as you remember that the clan at its height what it was, its depth of support in suburban middle America, its relationship to middling corporations, it, its support with, in terms of police departments and so on. Obviously, it massively helps the contemporary middle class right that there are these capital start liars. And we're not just talking about billionaires like Murdoch and the Cokes, but smaller groups of middle-sized provincial capitalists, venture capitalists, hedge fund predators, um, who are willing to fund their media and electoral initiatives. But it's just to say that not everything is about big corporations versus the little guy. And one reason we have to be wary of that populist narrative is that big capital versus the ordinary person is exactly the one that Farage and the Tory anti-globalists, as they call themselves, deploy. You know, they like capitalism, but they don't like a lot of capitalists. They don't like what they consider crony capitalists. Uh, if you listen to Farage, when he's really telling you what he thinks, and he would go on Alex Jones' show and various other programs and say what he thinks, he's got a fairly conspiratorial view of these guys. And their, the, his agenda and their, the agenda of the middle class right and, you know, the kinds of people who are trying to take over the conservative party is often at odds with that of the really big capitalist predators. As for the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, I don't believe we should overstate their general influence either. What I know is that um, Thatcher was, before trust, the prime minister who would be seen as most aligned with the IEA in ideological terms. And in fact, I think that um, she wrote to them uh, shortly after taking power, saying, you helped create the atmosphere for uh, our policies. But in fact, if you actually look at the things that we associate with Thatcherism, you know, the really neoliberal ideas like compulsory competitive tendering, privatization, housing sell-off, etc., didn't come from them. You know, the IEA had other concerns. Uh, you know, sound money is a bit closer to where they were. Um, I'm not so sure that's their position now. And if the IEA has been accommodated by the business wing of conservatism and promoted on the BBC and other places, but it's partly because they have a real constituency in the, in the ecology of the right, and partly because they're useful in waging the battle against the left, and partly because, as Thatcher said, they help mainstream ideas that bourgeois Tories dare not argue for. So I think that we need to have a clearer focus on forms of reaction and forms of danger that aren't necessarily aligned with the most powerful capitalists. And historically, that would have been fascism. You know, fascism didn't gain the support of big business really until it was uh, either on the brink of power or had just taken power. Does it strike you as at all strange that that big capital doesn't have more of a voice in the, in the British media? Say, I mean, it's, it seems somewhat peculiar that it's not fostered institutions that can fight its corner more effectively, given you know the tremendous resources that big business has. Yeah. But the thing is that capitalists never do anything for themselves. They always have other people doing things for them. And when it comes to politicians and uh, and the media, they have advocates. And it's not a question of whether they take the right line. 
the Conservative Party, as historically the party of capital, uh, has always had to maintain itself as a vehicle for ideological contestation. And the ways in which that uh, has been the case has involved compromise with, particularly with the middle class, particularly with small businesses and so on, but also taking into account some of the demands and views of working class Tories. So uh, I think that from the point of view of big capital, if most people were reading The Sun and taking their politics from The Sun, they wouldn't lose too much from that. You know, it's it's inconvenient when Murdoch and the rest go hard Brexit and that's that's difficult for big capital, but they can live with it. And then look at what happened with Truss. When she introduced the mini-budget, how did the CBI respond? And the CBI, to be clear, is not necessarily the voice of dominant fractions of big business because business has shifted in its composition. It's much more financial now. But it did say that they welcomed the budget as a first step towards a much better society, smaller state, with supply-side reforms to, to relations between labor and capital and so on. They welcomed it. So I think that their capacity for autonomous leadership is severely mitigated. I also think that what I've called structural stupidity and what the late Neil Davidson called socially determined stupidity plays a role here. What's meant by that is, you know, when he talked about socially determined stupidity, he was saying, look, capitalists, by dint of the conditions under which they make a living, the conditions of competition and the short-term horizons of profit-making are conditioned in such a way as to calculate stupidly. And then when you introduce neoliberalism as a project, which makes the system a lot more volatile, a lot more short-term, you introduce another level of stupidity such that the system becomes incapable of really of looking out for its own rational long-term interests. So I think that that's why the situation is what it is. Just turning to Labour for a moment. So Labour is, is obviously consistently posting extremely handsome leads in, in the polls. And uh, the expectation of, of most people is that Labour will win the next election pretty handily, regardless of who the next Conservative Prime Minister is. Do you share that view? And, and, and do you think that the strategy of, of Keir Starmer, whatever we think of it on the left, has actually turned out to be pretty effective in terms of uh, electoral terms, the strategy of basically marginalising the left, trying to make the party more acceptable to the mainstream media and, and to business? Well, uh, let me say, first of all, Labour certainly, I think, will win. It's not clear whether it will win by the kind of margin that we're seeing in the polls today, because we might not see an election until January 2025, uh, which I think is the last uh, point at which an election can be held. And, and, it, and it's, it's one thing to register a, a protest in a, in a poll and actually going to a polling station and voting. Yeah, I mean, the big thing would be Tory voters not turning out. I think that would make a big change. The chances of a lot of these voters actually coming over and voting Labour, I'm not so sure about that. Um, and that sort of brings me to the point that you raised about whether we can say that Starmer's strategy has been effective. I think until Boris Johnson started to auto-implode, and then, you know, the Tories decided to burden themselves with less trust. It would have been extremely difficult to make that case. And indeed, 
Starmer was under pressure, not just from the left, um, who are far too scattered to make that pressure count, but from the right within his own cabinet. You know, they were briefing that he was boring. Tony Blair was complaining, had no ideas, etc. Which, you know, is, is true, but then Tony Blair's ideas are like, bring back identification cards. Let's uh, have that uh, run as an idea again. So I'm not sure I buy the idea that this vindicates Keir Starmer. I think we can say that, to a point, purging the left has neutralize some of the attacks that will come from the right. That's true. But I wouldn't take that for granted in terms of what would happen in an election, because it wouldn't take much if the right-wing media didn't want Labour in power. To start off with the anti-Semitism stuff again, you know, Keir Starmer um, was in a cabinet with an anti-Semite, that sort of thing. Or to raise the Jimmy Savile stuff, the Jimmy Savile smears again. Or to engage in the uh, sort of culture wars, uh, Labour doesn't believe that women exist, etc., etc. And, and um, the media have pretty effectively smeared both Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband as well, so it's not like they haven't got form for very effectively undermining the reputation of, of much more centrist politicians than a Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, it's a question of uh, who do they feel more threatened by, who do they want. Uh, so if they want Keir Starmer, and my feeling is, honestly, at this point, they would rather let Labour take over and, you know, I mean, carry the can, apart from anything else. They probably think Labour would do better at selling spending cuts and so on than the Conservatives. So I, I think that by, let's say, an election is deferred until January 2025, by that point, we might have seen the lead narrow somewhat. And then the question will be, how much further can it be narrowed by the uh, arranged powers of the right-wing media, by the compliant BBC, and by the Tories' uh, possible funding advantage, because Labour doesn't really have... You know, it's lost a lot of its grassroots activists. You know, they're not going to be doing much door knocking. It's lost a lot of funding. It's got a, a very difficult relationship with the trade unions. So it might be possible for them, for them to narrow Labour's lead quite significantly. Uh, you know, we're speculating here, but um, what I'm saying is it's not guaranteed. It's not absolutely nailed on that Keir Starmer is going to romp to power. And there are things that Starmer could do that would make that very difficult. Take this business of spending cuts. You know, he's talking to the TUC saying things are going to be very tough. We're going to have to uh, get public finances in order, etc., etc. So he's preparing the ground. But what Labour hasn't done yet is commit to any spending cuts. It hasn't said it's in favour of austerity. To the contrary, it's opposed austerity. When it came to the triple lock on pensions, it opposed getting rid of it. Now, maybe... It was easier to oppose austerity when Boris was still in office and he said he opposed austerity too. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, this is all undermined by the fact that their, their habit, their habitual tendency is to try to outflank the government to the right on things like spending and public debt. And the fact that they're obsessed with proving their credentials to the newspapers in the City of London. Um, but I think they must know that the space for backing an extremely unpopular policy uh, is small. They, I don't think they can just come out and say, we're going to cut spending. Um, Do you think there's a degree of influence there from, from American politics as well, you know, recognition that the Biden administration shifted to, to the left and pursued a, you know, and ultimately you know, sort of failed, but they did attempt a more stimulatory program? 
Possibly. Um, I certainly think that that changed the dynamics somewhat in, in the same way that, uh, you know, Sanders drove the agenda somewhat to the left in the US, as did pressure from the right, from Trump and so on. Uh, in the UK, Corbynism changed the parameters. And I think it's just, you know, and also just the general backlash against austerity. So I think that there is a sense in which the United States politics may have an effect here. But what effect that has will depend partly on the midterms. You know, uh, the economy is looking bad uh, in the United States. and The Republicans are starting to get back in their groove having really damaged themselves with their anti-abortion position. So if the Republicans sweep the midterms, then maybe the calculations look a bit different. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.